1: Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before launching into our spoiler-filled discussion of Stephen Norrington's 2003 film, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comic book concept... As a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this week, oh, this week it's been picked for many reasons, but I will say up front, spoilers coming for the Flash season two finale and for DC <laughs> Rebirth. Uh, guys, can you please explain Flashpoint to me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not
2: sure if I can. No, I can't. actually, no, this is a quite straightforward one. Relatively straightforward one.
0: Is it worth explaining Flashpoint because it's basically all been undone, hasn't
2: it? Yeah, it has kind of all been
1: undone, but but it still exists as a story, doesn't it? So <laughs> it's a thing. Yeah, yeah. And I've been um, hearing a lot about it for the last couple of weeks. Yeah.
2: Well, basically, I mean, the reason that Flashpoint happens is the same reason for the uh, spoilery um, thing that happens at the end of season two of The Flash which, um, yeah, I guess people have to skip on if they haven't watched it yet, but I think anyone who's that invested in The Flash Probably will have done by now, especially if they, the kind of person who listens to this podcast. So, um, and if you're not watching The Flash, at the end of season two of The Flash, um, after Barry's father has been killed, um, he goes a bit nuts and flips out and goes back in time and does the thing that he stopped himself from doing at the end of season one, which is to stop his mother from being killed by the reverse Flash. Um, so we haven't yet seen the effects of this, except that there was a, a, an, a previous version of himself in the room who fades out of existence and then, like, the season ends kind of thing. So the implication, mm. obviously, is that Barry has completely ballsed up the timeline by doing this. Um, and so that's why we're kind of waiting to see what shape season three is going to be in. Um, and that's why Joe was quite elusive about... Um, Tom Kavanagh's role in season three because we don't know now if we might get a changed (laughs) timeline where it's just the real Harrison Wells although I hope it's not I really hope it is Earth 2 Harrison Wells because that character is the best iteration of that character so far and I really want to see you know more stuff with him but that's by the (laughs)
0: by by. (laughs) this could be a good way to have Supergirl in the universe now as well yes Uh, now now she's on the network yeah
1: (laughs) yeah Um, well they've already promised a four series crossover. so Legends of Tomorrow Arrow Flash and Supergirl will have a four-part crossover event at some point next season. Um, well, it would be
0: wonderful. That is crazy.
1: It would be a really <laughs> handy way if they identify anything
2: that they want to change about those shows. And I'm particularly thinking Arrow here, because I don't watch Arrow, but obviously Arrow's been going for a good few years, and I get the impression that there are, there's maybe stuff that they did a while ago
1: in Arrow that might be at odds with where they want it to be now. I tell you, Uh, there's a lot that they've done in the last season that is at (laughs) odds with what the fans want it to be. The fans in protest at the season four finale, probably season four, I think so, um, they uh, changed the Arrow subreddit to a Daredevil subreddit (laughs) because they wanted to talk about a show that had actually been good this year. Um, Yeah, they are not a happy bunch. So they could use Flashpoint for
2: essentially the same purpose that DC used Flashpoint for. The thing is, when DC did Flashpoint, they didn't tell everyone in advance that they were going to do it. And this is why so much to do with the New 52... I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why the New 52 didn't work. Well, one of the reasons why it didn't really work was that we didn't really get much preparation for it. Um, what basically happened was DC announced that they were doing a crossover event called Flashpoint a few months before it happened, and then started to... Um, kind of drop hints and increasingly suggest that everything was coming to an end and then just before flashpoint dropped they basically announced yes we're completely scrubbing continuity here are the last issues of stories featuring these characters that you've been following for the last 25 years Um, we're doing flashpoint and then when you come out of flashpoint we're going to have a totally different continuity so the premise i kind of respect that i kind of like i kind of like that they tried to do that
0: well wasn't just i don't
2: because i just there are a lot of comics that just never got to
1: finish actually telling the stories that they were supposed to be. (laughs) oh wait so was that so was that the case that they told fans that but also creators so like writers weren't able to prepare for their books
0: well there was there was this thing that kind of happened that it was supposed to be the end of final crisis and like management got cold feet or something and then uh, like however long Mm. after a year or so after the management changed and then they were like okay we can do our big reset button which
2: which is why a lot of dc comics in the kind of between about 2006 and about 2008 did feel a little bit more like they were sort of you know (laughs) spinning their potentially winding things up um but yeah so i mean Anyway, I mean, that's the kind of status quo coming out of Flashpoint, because what basically happens with Flashpoint is Barry goes back in time and stops his mother from being killed and completely changes the world, and then at the end of the story they reverse that and you come back to a world that still isn't exactly the same for various reasons, which we now know from DC Rebirth is because of Doctor Manhattan, although at the time that certainly wasn't the case.
1: Because of Alan Moore. (laughs) It all ties together. It's all
2: Alan Moore's... yeah. Com- comics are grim and gritty because Alan Moore told everyone to go and do grim and gritty comics and Jeff Johns really wanted to do light-hearted and upbeat comics but um, he couldn't stop himself from ripping off character's arms because Alan Moore told him to and that's I what read
1: happened. the I read the DC Rebirth um, issue and kind of like, I was like, I, I quite like the idea of this as a meta-narrative but I also had like little Seven James devils on my shoulders going, <laughs> this is wrong, this is wrong! Alan Moore, they they couldn't have done something that would piss Alan Moore off more. This guy who has been disrespected by this company so many times, they've basically just bent him over and kicked him in the arse. I think because I knew it going in,
2: I I didn't hate it so much. I kind of admired it as a piece of trolling. I mean, it's a stupid idea, (laughs) but... Um, and actually, the rebirth issue, there was a lot that I quite liked about it. some stuff that i didn 't, but i I kind of liked the thrust of it generally and Of the four rebirth issues that have come out so far, which are Superman, Batman, Green Arrow, and Green Lantern, three of them have been fairly decent and Green Arrow rebirth is genuinely a fantastic issue and I actually if you it, like if anyone 's listening who watches Arrow but has never read a Green Arrow comic but is interested in pick up green arrow rebirth because this new run looks like it's going to be really good and it looks like it's a version of green arrow that i really like from the kind of like like the mike Grell stuff from the 80s but younger and a bit less grizzled but still that character rather than the character that he's been for the last five years or so then again if you like
1: arrow you probably do like that version of the character so you might not like this version of the character <laughs> but anyway as as we've um, just explained arrow fans are Feeling pretty conflicted right now about what they like. I wasn't planning on reading any DC Rebirth, but I found the single issue fascinating enough as just a big kind of reset button, and like uh, it slightly tempted me to pick up more. And given that I'm also reading Vision at the moment, the Marvel comic written by Tom King, which is incredible. Mm. It's the best thing I'm reading, um, full stop, at the moment, and. Tom King is taking over Batman, so that is the one that's tempting me.
2: Yeah, try try out the Batman yeah. Rebirth issues. It's co-written with Scott Snyder. It's kind of yes. Scott Snyder handing it over, and it's um yeah, it's it's pretty good. I'm I'm intrigued by that. Hmm. Um but yeah, so, but, I mean, that's gotten us slightly off what Flashpoint is, but basically <laughs> the alternate world of Flashpoint is basically, uh, it's a, well, it's funny because again, it's DC going, look, here's a dark, grim and gritty world that could have been. And it's like, well, yeah, but your existing one is kind of dark and grim and gritty anyway. <laughs> um, but the main changes are that, well, Barry Allen kind of wakes up in a world where nobody recognizes him because he doesn't exist for some reason. Um, And stuff like Superman's rocket was found by the government rather than the Kent family, so he's he's raised in isolation um, Uh. away from the sun, and so he's like a kind of scrawny, looks a bit like a goth, and is kept in an underground bunker. With Batman, Bruce Wayne was shot instead of Thomas Wayne. Thomas Wayne was the survivor of the mugging, so Thomas Wayne is Batman. Um, there's a few other differences, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't touch a single one of the spin-off series. So what they did was because they'd kind of cancelled all the previous books and before they launched New 52, for various characters, you got a couple of flashpoint tie-in issues. Um, I didn't read any of those. I think I read most of the main series. I can't even remember if I read the whole thing. I was a bit, I just didn't really fancy the idea of it and didn't really like the look of it. Um, there's one great moment right at the very, very end, which is that um, Barry Allen manages in the new continuity to get a letter from Thomas Wayne to Bruce Wayne. Um, like, you know, Bruce Wayne in the new continuity. And that's quite mm. a nice little moment right at the end. But otherwise, it just, it, it just, it's so meaningless now. It's just, you know, I guess you can kind of read it on its own merits as a story of an alternate timeline. And they did the, the animated movie of it, which was apparently quite good if you like that style of thing. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's already become a footnote and it's just so weird that like the people who instigated this five years ago are the same people who now have rendered it a complete and total meaningless footnote in the history of DC. (laughs) A
1: a weird kind of what eight year experiment that didn't pay off? Five years. September 2011
2: was when the new books launched. So around about this time five years ago Flashpoint would have been going on I think. I think it was over the summer.
1: So the actual the actual like kind of Flashpoint mini universe is that a kind of like DC's equivalent to what Marvel did with Battle World on with Secret Wars last year, in that little bit or or Age of Apocalypse or something like it's, that.
0: Yeah, it's more like the Age of Apocalypse in that it cancels a bunch of existing books, replaces them with mini series, and then puts everything back together slightly differently at the end.
1: Okay, so for the Flash i mean that that's what makes it interesting particularly is that the flash doesn't just affect the flash it affects those three other shows mm. um now i'm most in- invested in what happens on the flash um the of of those four shows super supergirl just after i i'm I'm just interested what's going to happen going forward Because I think season two um i mean and we promise we we will get to doing some special flash episodes at some point because given how much Seb and I love that show, we probably <laughs> should cover it a little bit deeper than this on the podcast at some point, but I just, I felt I kind of liked season two more than a lot of people seem to have done as well. So I thought yeah. there was a lot of good stuff in there. Surprising everyone. The Kevin Smith directed episode was fantastic. Um, and nice Jason Muse cameo in that one. Yes. <laughs> um, and I like, I kind of like most of what's at the core of that show. It just so happened that the villain didn't work post- reveal of who the villain was and um that took a little bit away especially in the especially in Alaska but like I loved half of what happened in the finale which was all of the characters that I like doing things but I just was bored by anything that involved Zoom um mm. but then finished the episode with that moment and went holy shit they can do whatever they like next season um but would it would it, given that this is Flashpoint which when I first watched the episode I didn't I didn't make that connection because I wasn't reading DC Comics then. Um, given that this is based on Flashpoint, does it seem like a good predictor that maybe what will happen at the start of next season is a kind of pocket season where Barry goes like, maybe over the course of three or four episodes. Yeah, I I wouldn't have thought it's going to be the whole season. I think it's going to be
2: like they did with the Earth 2 stuff. You know, they didn't spend Mm -hmm. the whole season on Earth 2, although I kind of wish they had, because I really liked all the stuff. I think the stuff on Earth 2 was the strongest stuff they did in the whole season. That was a
1: great double episode, yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think we'll get a similar thing at the start of this season. You'll have a few episodes in an alternate timeline, and then stuff will get fixed, but maybe it won't be fixed quite right, and, you know, it'll be... I have a feeling that, like... The, the big bad of the series will be to do with like the time wraiths or something like that. That's kind of, you know, Barry's broken mm. time and now they're after him. And, um, I also think there's a decent bet that Zoom will have been turned in, given the way that they made him into a skeleton right at the end, that he will have turned into,
1: um, Black Flash, which is, um, basically their, their Grim Reaper. Okay. I would happily not see any more Zoom, but that's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and, um, The thing that I thought was, and this is just nerdy Flash stuff, that was important to pay attention to in that last scene was that when Barry does go into the room, obviously the first time that Barry travelled back inside to that room, there was a Flash in front of him who waved him and told him no. And and that's why he didn't save his mum the first time. And we've never seen that version of the Flash. So presumably Barry has to go back again to stop him... Saving his to stop himself saving his mother kind of twi- yeah. twice at the same time, <laughs> which uh, I don't know. I that, is, I, that I room I love... is going to get more crowded than that episode <laughs> of The where they accidentally <laughs> stopped JFK getting
2: assassinated. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I I just I love all of that nerdy. I love how how they just throw so much kind of like comic booky stuff at that show and just expect you to go with it. And because the because the emotions underpinning most of the stuff in the show work. You buy into all of that stuff. Well, this is...
2: uh, uh, Yeah, So I think one of the things that works best about Flash is that the characters have been so well-defined and you've got to know and like the characters that they can play with alternate versions of the characters. And that's what I liked so much about Season 2 was the stuff with Earth 2 and seeing all the alternate versions of the characters that we know. Now they've given themselves another method by which they can do alternate (laughs) versions. It's like alternate versions of characters is kind of what, what Flash's deal is now. And um, I,
1: I like that. So if they do it as well as they did Earth Two, um, then yeah, that that could be great. Yeah, I, and I'm just gonna work on printing up my hashtag Bring Back Patty T-shirts ahead of season three. <laughs> well, again, alternate timeline. She could be she
2: could be Barry's girlfriend. It, like he could get back to a timeline where they are a couple already, or they're married.
1: Even you know, I hope so. I like- Maybe Iris doesn't exist.
2: Maybe Iris doesn't uh... exist. That would be great.
1: No, see, I like Iris, I just don't... I'm not she's better in them. season 2 I'm uh, not shipping them, that's key. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, well, from one Flash to another, because we will kick into our new segment now, and the Flash movie, um, which has nothing to do with the Flash TV show, and it will not be anything like it, because you like that thing, and DC cannot make movies that you like. Um, but maybe they can, because there are lots of shake at DC, and... Um, Seth Graham Smith who was going to direct the film he had he, also written the script based on a treatment from the all-powerful Lord Miller he departed the film a few weeks ago and needed to be replaced and so Warner Brothers have replaced him and they've replaced him with Rick Famuyiwa, which I might have pronounced that completely wrong and i apologize pause if, if I had uh, but he directed Dope recently uh, which um, seemed to be received pretty well And I wonder what you guys think about this and what you think about all the kind of the the shuffling that's going on behind the scenes at DC, people departing projects, Zack Snyder not having this kind of (laughs) uh, Kevin Feige-esque touch on all of the films, apparently he will no longer... Be visiting the sets of movies like The Flash and Aquaman <laughs> and stuff like that. He will. He's barred. But Jeff Johns will maybe be doing a little bit more of that. And we've, you know, Suicide Squad apparently, the first cut of that movie has had some positive reaction from the fans it was shown to and that it's had its tone slightly adjusted. We we found out recently there's um, a Harley Quinn spin off movie in the works. What do you think about all of this? What, what uh, do you have any? Are you any more hopeful about the DC movies coming up? Or, and I mean, I assume none of us have seen any any of um, Rick Famuyiwa's movies, uh, so we probably can't talk about him in too much detail. I mean, I was, is this, are you any more encouraged for the Flash?
0: I was going to say I can see no problems giving a sort of superhero movie to an indie director. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, surely, I mean. This is this now is the thing with superhero movies. You give them to inexperienced directors, and they get that experience, and then they can go off and do other things. Um, surely that's better than giving it to a guy who's directed nothing. Like Seth Graham Smith hadn't directed any movies, um, and was best known as the writer of *Pride and Prejudice* and zombies. Surely, yeah, surely I mean- that is that is the that is a more intelligent <laughs> move for a studio that claimed it was going to be more filmmaker-driven. Him him being off, that certainly seems positive.
2: But yeah, I, I don't know what to make of uh, who they've replaced him with. And uh, it's hard to make any kind of judgment on, you know, we have not yet seen what a single one of these films is like that that isn't made by Zack Snyder. Uh, yes. Suicide Squad will be interesting to see because that'll be the first time we do get one. I, d- I really don't think we can judge anything about the future of the DC films until we've seen Suicide Squad, and even then, Suicide Squad has already been made and was made before a lot of these plans were put into place. So it did have
1: those fairly substantial reshoots. So apparently, I mm. mean, it,
0: it is—it's a bizarre choice for your like third in-universe movie, isn't it? It would be like like Marvel coming out with you know like, Defenders or Thunderbolts as their, like, second second or third movie. It's just, it's such a strange choice. I kind
1: mm. I mean, the, the Suicide Squad, obviously we're going to find out later in the summer what Suicide Squad is like. I was... The most encouraging thing that, as far as I could see, that DC have at least intimated at in the past month or so as this shuffling has gone on, is that this Harley Quinn solo movie might be happening. And... Whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, it at least shows that Warner Brothers and DC are being responsive to something that has been received well and are willing to slightly change their big six-year plans that they set in place to just make all these movies regardless of how they reacted to. You know, Iron Man did an Iron Man movie and they did a Hulk movie. The Iron Man movie was really successful, so the next film they made was a sequel to Iron Man. The Hulk movie, less so. They shuffled him off into the background. And, um, you know, they obviously realised on a set of Thor that Tom Hiddleston was doing some good stuff with Loki and decided to make him the villain of the Avengers. And not everything was set in place five, six years ahead of time. You know, they had an, they had a plan, but they were willing to respond but to that and change like, that. That's
0: why when, when DC announced their slate of, like, how many films it was? It was like eight hmm. years of films, or' something ridiculous, and I was just looking at that going like Marvel didn't plan this from day one they they mm. built it
2: it was it was hubris in the extreme and yeah. it, I mean, it wasn't even so much hubris as it was looking at Marvel because Marvel had been in a position to announce that slate of films and
1: going, "Oh, we want a bit of that and but yeah. not learning the right lessons it felt yeah. like
0: um,
1: um, and i don 't know, like I just think that this may be the stuff that we're hearing. In the past month or so, following the release of Batman v Superman, is is more encouraging. Like yeah. I don't know whether a solo Harley Quinn movie is a good idea, but at least it's them taking oh, it the is a good idea, idea <laughs> that this is some oh well, probably financially it is. Who knows whether they'll be able to make a good solo movie out of Harley Quinn? But they're also talking about it being like a kind of um, a team up, or almost kind of like a Birds of Prey style. Um, DC I'd be very
0: very happy if movie. it was a Harley, Quinn to do Harley and, and Power and I Girl. Think. Or
1: Harley and Ivy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, uh, that, and it sounds more Harley exciting works to me as a than an character better than she does as a solo character because she's oh, she's definitely. a foil for people. I finally read Mad Love recently and uh, really really <laughs> enjoyed that. So I've been mm. watching watching some more Batman animated series. Haven't got to Harley in it yet though. But uh, <laughs> oh, I tell you what, I read it aloud as well. I did Harley's voice and everything. <laughs>
0: That's bonus so podcast coming later, right?
1: Yeah, I'll just... I will I, I will read aloud, Mad Love, when we reach <laughs> $10,000 a month on Patreon. <laughs> okay, um, well so we'll move on from DC. We'll move over to Marvel. And there have been some rumours about Captain Marvel. Now, nothing's been confirmed yet. Um, I mentioned this on the mini earlier in the week, that Brie Larson is, according to the trades... In talks to join the movie in the role of Carol Danvers and um, that's interesting because we are still at least we're still about three years away from a Captain Marvel movie so I mean this is a character that has been rumoured for years to have already been cast there were rumours that <laughs> um, Joss Whedon might have been wanting to include her in Avengers Age of Ultron and um, that Emily Blunt had potentially been cast Um uh, Ruth Wilson was talked about at one point. Rebecca Ferguson was the favourite earlier this year. Um, James, what do you think about Brie Larson in this role? Is that, Does that get you excited? Does she seem right for Captain Marvel?
0: Yeah, it's kind of hard to say whether she seems right because Captain Marvel is one of those characters who's been through so many iterations. Like, it would be hard... Aside from Katie Sackhoff, who like <laughs> instantly feels like she's got the attitude and the and the looks for it. You can I can imagine Brie Larson playing a version of Carol. Mm. Like whether it's the version of Carol, like you know, it's hard to say, but you know, I'd I'd have probably said that about some other Marvel characters in the past. So I mean I mean I'm excited because I like her as an actress. And yes. also for the reassembling of the Scott Pilgrim cast within the Marvel universe.
1: Yeah. Um, You were saying about Carol having gone through a lot in the comics. When did she actually become Captain Marvel? She was Miss Marvel for a long time, wasn't she?
0: Yeah, that was quite recent. Uh, I can't remember the exact point where it happened. It was probably, it was within the last five years, probably maybe three or four years ago.
1: So would would it make sense, do you think, from an adaptation point of view, to kind of take that moment of her becoming Captain Marvel and kind of, Ignoring a lot of the baggage that comes before, and just kind of having her mostly defined by by this stuff—the the recent Captain Marvel stuff.
0: Yeah, like her, I would say her, like the the kind of separation point is that she stopped being a sort of C lister, and they tried to reposition her as like a career superhero. I guess, hmm. like she she made this kind of conscious decision to be like, an A-list superhero and pour everything into that. Like, the personally, I enjoyed the previous take on the character, which was her as acknowledging that she wasn't an A-lister and sort of, you know, it was more soapy and a bit more of a kind of traditional 80s superhero book that was br- the Brian Reed volume. Like, I I really enjoyed that version. But right. But the, the most recent version, which was relaunched by Kelly Sudaconic, is definitely definitely feels like they went through and said okay we're giving the character a makeover on the basis that we want the movie version to be like this so i'm i'm sure that's how they'll play it yeah yeah and one thing
1: i'm surprised that you haven't said james because this is something that you tend to say is she seems very young right (laughs) (laughs) or are you just avoiding that just in case that she's actually 45 and you thought she was 26 i can't tell i can't
0: tell anymore Uh, i know she's
1: she's younger than me james and we all know how young i am <laughs> she's like um she's like a month and a half younger than me um she's she's 26 years old um is is captain marvel does she seem when i've read her um i i've read a tiny little bit of carol danvers she seems like maybe she reads as maybe mid 30s
0: well this like she seems older definitely but and I imagine that's because she's got an army career behind her. Like I don't, I don't know how high a rank Captain is, but I'm assuming it's <laughs> you know fairly substantial. It doesn't seem like something you walk into. <laughs> but like you know, she was a test pilot, so you don't become a test pilot overnight. Like uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um...
1: Is it is it something that's does it feel like something that's crucial to the character, or do you think that they could do stuff with a younger Captain Marvel? Because obviously you've got to compare her to. All of the other stars of this Marvel Cinematic Universe, and so obviously, when you're looking at people like Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> and Paul Rudd and Jeremy Renner, um, and even um, Scarlett Johansson, they're all they're all at, at least a little bit older, if not substantially older than her.
0: From a pure purely practical perspective, you want younger characters in the, in the universe because you don't want to. Going in high and then everyone sort of ages out of the role. Hmm. Like, whether it's necessarily true to the character for her to be young, you know, I don't, again, I don't know, but I think Captain Marvel's kind of so loosely defined anyway, you can, you can get away with doing plenty of versions of her.
1: Yeah. I'm just looking because, I mean, like, Chadwick Boseman, I've just looked, he is 39. Scarlett Hansen's 31 now, so I guess she was probably a, was probably a similar age when she was making Iron Man 2. Yeah. One of... One of the things that I think is interesting here, though, and so I I did a quick bit of googling to see when Benedict Cumberbatch was announced as Doctor Strange. He was announced as Doctor Strange in December 2014, which was just short of two years before the release of that movie. If Brie Larson is being cast now, um, so we're in June 2016, you would imagine she's probably been prepped for a 2018 movie, which... You look at 2018. You've got Black Panther, Avengers: Infinity War Part One, and Ant Man at the Wasp. Um, Captain Marvel then comes in 2019. She's showing up in Avengers: Infinity War Part One, right? That's that's what this casting right now is.
0: Yeah, would that I would make... imagine. Yeah,
1: she's not going to show up any earlier in that in Black Panther, or, uh, unless it's kind of like post credits kind of cameo.
0: It's possible it will be a post credits thing. I mean, Captain Marvel as a character is tied to the Cree in her origin, so it would make sense for her to be in Infinity War, which you imagine is going to be spending some time in space.
1: Yeah, but if they are, if it is going to be like a cameo, you're probably talking about Guardians of the Galaxy, Thor Ragnarok. They're the kind of movies that would make more sense for her to yeah. show up
0: in. Based on what James or, or Gunn... Or be hinted at in. Based on what James Gunn said, I don't expect to see her in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Thor Ragnarok. No, I don't either. Yeah, I'd be more likely to put money on that one
1: yeah that's exciting okay well so um
0: i mean fingers
1: crossed that it is brie larson because um you know i think she's a really really fantastic actor i mean anyone who saw room can attest to that but also that she has done quite a lot of mainstream fare as well um you know obviously was amazing in scott pilgrim um so uh it it she she feels like someone who could probably be very good in this film i'm just thinking as well short Turn 12 is probably another film that you should watch if you want to see uh brie larson being amazing yeah. um but yeah so fingers crossed that it actually happens because um it's about damn time we saw captain marvel she's been pushed back and pushed back enough let's yeah. let's get carol <laughs> danvers on the big screen
0: I don't know, know. there might be another Spider Man film to make before (laughs) then.
1: There is. (laughs) That's entirely the reason she's been pushed back. (laughs) That brings us to the end of our news segment. So we will press on now for a discussion that I think everyone involved with this podcast has been looking forward to since the day we started the show. We're going to listen to a quick trailer and then we'll be back discussing the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. At stake, they'll be the world's last hope,
0: and the game is on.
1: gentlemen okay so that was the trailer for the league of extraordinary gentlemen guys i'm really looking forward to this um what i think i will start by doing is describing in a nutshell what happens in the movie because i think once we get to uh, once we get to comparing it to the comic book that we we might find out that they are very very different beasts so never gave you that idea so the movie um is basically high concept is a bunch of victorian literary characters all exist in the same real world and they are recruited um by a guy who is called m uh maybe a bond reference maybe not because he's actually five different characters and (laughs) um (laughs) We uh, we we see this team brought together and they are brought together ostensibly to stop uh, an entity who is trying to orchestrate a world war in 1899. And the team get together, but then they are double-crossed and they have to then stop the people who are really behind this. Who are kind of the people we thought it was all along, but kind of aren't and that's the movie. That's it. That's most that's mostly it right because there's not much else in there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that's fair.
1: Okay. So what I would like to do after that brief setup, I would like to know all the things that you guys like about this movie. I'll try and join in as well. If we just <laughs> say as many nice things as we can think about The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and and then we will pile in. I'll start us off. I quite like Sean Connery being Sean Connery
0: no, yeah. no, not there for it. Wasn't that keen.
2: Okay. <laughs> the production design, if you happen to like steampunk, is great. <laughs> I personally don't really like steampunk.
0: <laughs> Can I just make a quick uh, observation here? I looked on the Wikipedia yeah. page uh, yesterday, and it's not a steampunk film; it's a diesel punk film.
2: <laughs> Sorry, it's a. Oh, well, isn't it? A, doesn't Wikipedia say it's a steampunk diesel punk? Actually, yes, adventure? that is true. If, I if didn't even pedantic. know dieselpunk was a thing.
0: <laughs> no, I didn't either.
2: <laughs> but I don't really understand how diesel punk.
0: I think it's like a s- thing. It's steampunk, but with petrol.
2: <laughs> but the thing is, but you you can't be diesel diesel punk. Surely would be bringing technology of the present day or or futuristic technology to the era from which diesel originates. So you'd have to be doing diesel punk from kind of interwar up to fifties and sixties. This is set in the Victorian era. So it can't be diesel punk because they don't have diesel. Like, it's it's steampunk <laughs> because that's the era that it's the, the 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 prefix to the punk part refers to the era in which you're putting I mean it. none of yeah? them were
0: wearing safety pins so it doesn't make any sense.
2: <laughs> right guys, stay positive, stay positive. <laughs> all, right, all right. No, it 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 let's let's face it. It has it has a production design that is a um you know kind of expensive and uh, well realized and b pretty consistent and well thought out. Like throughout the film it looks like the film do you see what i mean it's like it's, it's yes. a consistent film visually um okay. that's consistent positive. That's high and and, <laughs> and jason fleming i like jason fleming in it quite a lot Yeah. this well.
0: was going to be my point like <laughs> even though the character is so far away from who dorian gray yeah. actually is dorian gray in this film is a real no no no, uh, like,
2: Jay- oh, sorry, oh, no, no 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 no, no. i said i said jason fleming Jason Fleming's oh. Jekyll and High. I would not say that about Dorian Gray in any way, shape or form. Really?
0: I, I really yes. like Dorian Gray in this film, even well, though he's nothing like Dorian it's, Gray, the character. It's, well, it's a take on the oh, character. No, yeah, but
2: you can't have a take on a character who is so specifically described <laughs> visually, so specifically described, and then... <laughs> And then you make him look like Johnny Depp. T- also, they've got, they've got his age and the date completely wrong. And, oh God, I mean, I'm sorry. I am someone who did do Oscar Wilde at university. So it's, it's, it's the, the problems Wilde with Dorian Gray a quite a big deal for me. Yes. In, including someone who was basically Dorian Gray, which brings us on to another problem with the character of Dorian Gray in
1: this film, but let's not get to that at <laughs> that point. Um, I, the, the positive thing that I'm going to add now is I listened to the commentary for this movie. And Jason Fleming and Tony Curran seem to have a really fun time making this film, and well, um, I appreciated that. You know, well, for starters, Jason Fleming is clearly
2: making a different film from everybody else, because he's making a film that's actually good, and Tony Curran wasn't in the room for half of his scenes, so... No, he was. He was. He was in a blue spandex suit. No, but when it's, when it, when you've got the bits where he's literally just invisible, not, I'm not talking about the bits where they've CG'd, like, you know, he's got a bit of paint on him or whatever. The bits where you literally can't see him, he's not there. And he, and it's really obviously ADR'd. And yeah. yeah. So he was obviously having a good time sitting in a recording studio.
0: My favorite bit of that is when Sean Connery throws him out of a room, out of his room, and he's clearly just throwing thin air out of a room. (laughs) <laughs> it's like it looks about it's improv level acting
2: which given that they had an all over blue screen suit could they not have just had him there for that
1: bit
0: yeah but you know they've got to save money where they can
1: Can I? We're, we're really struggling to stay positive I've got another here, good thing
0: actually oh yeah uh, uh, hit me with the it the bit where Petta Wilson licks blood off her lips is quite hot <laughs> considering the circumstances I'll
1: tell you what I actually quite liked um, uh, relative to everything else, is the opening scene in Africa the scene where Quartermaine Sean Connery's Quartermain is recruited? Because at, at that point, the film uh, so that well, the, well, you've got the kind of the main opening sequence of the the prologue of the the two things going down in Britain and Germany. Um, that's not great, but the the, the Quartermaine recruitment scene is. I thought vaguely fun, and at least, like, at that point, the film seemed consistent in what it was going to, what, trying to do, because it was just one scene, basically. At, at the... But I quite, I quite liked it. I thought the film never really reached those dizzy heights again of Sean Connery talking to a bloke in a room. <laughs> at the same time, I mean, this, this is
2: gonna be the first, but not the last point that, that we do compare it to the comic, because, hey, that's what we're here for. Um, if you are a fan of the comic, immediately that scene lays out just how different a version this is going to be. Now, different isn't necessarily bad, I know that, but I don't think <laughs> Quartermaine is anywhere near as interesting if it's just, oh, he's exactly the man that he always was, he's just retired and reluctant. And and knowing from the behind-the-scenes stuff that originally they would have scripted it as it is in the comic, where he had been completely destroyed by being addicted to opium... Um And that Sean Connery said, no, I don't want to do that. That's That immediately, is for me, is a mark against the film because it's, well, you've kind of taken the one thing that's interesting about this interpretation of this character and ditched it. And so you've just basically made him Sean Connery (laughs) with a gun. Which, if that's what you want, is fine. He doesn't really do anything wrong, I suppose. But it's just, I mean, God, that character. I mean, (sighs) Joe, I'm going to put the classic question to you. Name two characteristics of Alan Quartermain in
1: this film. Uh, Beardy and Bondy.
0: <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna say like shooting and glasses.
1: <laughs> yes, that's. I mean, that's that's a nice little capper at the end of that scene. I um, uh, you guys, I'm gonna let you off the leash to. Don't feel like you have to apologise in any way for like <laughs> you know this is different, so it's bad. You can just say this is different because it's bad, and so it's bad because. I haven't read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, all The little I know about it comes from a Wikipedia article. And this film is bad. This film is real, real bad. And it's it's not just bad, it's boring. It's so boring. Well, Nothing happens. Nothing makes sense. The characters don't get a chance to be... Like, these are all iconic characters from literature. None of them are allowed to be iconic in this movie. <laughs> and Seb, you, you tweeted out earlier, and this is becoming a little bit of a thing for me on this podcast, <laughs> um, that I hate films that aren't about yeah. anything. And, I, and And on this one, I am with you, because it really
2: is not about... It has nothing to say. Given the premise, given when it's set and given the characters that it's pulled together it could be about
1: so much and it is about <laughs> literally nothing. Nothing. Right, but here's the thing so last week James raised this for me in regards to X-Men Apocalypse and he was right, I was going to get annoyed about that film because it was about nothing. And this film is about nothing. And that's frustrating. It, it's, it's frustrating when movies aren't about anything. But I've watched loads of movies that don't have really that many deep themes or that many, you know, kind of like a, a central message or something that they're trying to say through the film and really liked them. And it's possible for me to really like films that are about nothing. I love loads of TV shows that are about nothing. Seinfeld, I watched oh, all God, of the seasons fantastic. of it. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my my issue with the films that are about nothing is that what's on the surface has to be entertaining and so like the number of Jason Statham movies that I've watched and like just gone oh this is this is so much fun because I'm enjoying what is going on on the surface because the surface is silly and frothy and enjoyable the, the problem with a movie like this is it, it's fine if it doesn't want to be about anything as a big summer blockbuster but then it has to entertain me it has to it has to distract me from the fact that it's about nothing and that this is a movie that is not on its surface anywhere approaching entertainment
2: well similarly <laughs> so i mean we you know generally i because I, I know that there are people who will make the argument that um a, a, an adaptation shouldn't necessarily be judged on um, you know whether it changes things or not and but you know the purpose of this podcast is for us to compare the movies to the source material that they 're based on it is kind of what we 're all about for for good or bad. I do kind of think with this film, I mean, firstly, what brought me to that was was that you said, you know, um similarly, if a film does change things significantly, then it's got to be good and entertaining in order to get away with that. And again, this doesn't. But I actually kind of think with this film, it's so different from the source material that while I think we should have a bit of a chat to start with and, and fill in, fill you in on some of the background of the comic and talk about the comic as it relates to the production and all of that. I kind of feel that when we've done that, we can sort of draw a line under that to go on to discuss the rest of the film because there is no point going through this film and just judging it on a level of how does it relate to the comic because there is a very simple answer to that and the answer is none at all. Um, it's not a bad film because it's not like the comic. It's because it could be completely different from the comic and and be good. It's a bad film because it's a bad film, and like I I can see in this film the germ of a film that takes the basic premise of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen the comic and ditches everything in terms of theme and character that 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 comic had because. That is not, it's not a cinematic comic at all. It's not a comic that you could see being adapted into a film. But the idea of, here's a bunch of famous Victorian literary characters, let's put them together and send them on an adventure, is a great concept for a movie. And you could do...
1: Yeah, this, you, this is the original Justice
2: League yeah, or Avengers. And you could do a superficial, entertaining adventure movie that doesn't have any of the literary, um, pretensions of the comic. And it could be fantastic. It really could. So this film isn't bad because it's a
1: movified version of the comic. It's bad because it doesn't do it very well. <laughs> you know? I mean, I feel like your your earlier qualm about Dorian Gray maybe well, says okay. a lot about that. So <laughs> as far as I know, That's we have... Product. So the, yeah. the main characters on this team, mm-hmm. on the film, are Alan Quartermain, who is in the comic, yep. Captain Nemo, who is, Mina Harker, who is... Rodney Skinner, yep. who is the who is an Invisible Man. <laughs> yeah, he's not the Invisible Man because of lawsuits. Because sense. as a as a, um, as a
2: literary character, uh, Griffin, the Invisible Man,
1: is public domain,
2: but the movie rights are held by Universal, so they couldn't yeah. use that character.
1: So yeah,
0: yeah, isn't it also the case that they couldn't? have him wearing bandages or something because of the movie.
1: Um, Apparently that was also the case for Fu Manchu who is a villain in the comics but they couldn't use here because he is public domain in print but not on film. Yeah.
0: He's, he's not actually public domain, is he? Not not at all, because I know Marvel can't use him for okay. Because Marvel Master can't use him Kung for um, yeah. Shang
2: Chi, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And well, it's notable that in the comic he's not named as Fu Manchu in the same yeah, way right, as
0: okay. in Black
1: Dossier, James Bond is not named as James Bond. <laughs> um. Okay, so then, but then, so for the rest of the team, Jekyll and Hyde there in the comic, yeah. yeah. I mean, in in yeah. in a fairly well in some ways the film gets them right but in other ways the hide is quite different right um, but then dorian gray is a film invention yeah. year as is tom sawyer. Mm, tom sawyer is there anyone else n- <laughs> Oh, um,
2: f- the phantom is not from the comic. Um, M, M being Moriarty does come from the comic, although as you can probably imagine, it's, it's done a little bit better in the comic. The, the way that it's done in the comic is that they get recruited by, um, Campion Bond, who again, you know, is absent from the film because he's, it's essentially implied that he's an ancestor of James Bond. Um, they get recruited by him for a mysterious M who they don't meet. And throughout it, Mina, who is kind of the leader in the comic, is under the assumption mm. that M is Mycroft Holmes. And she keeps going, oh, we're working for Mycroft Holmes, aren't we? Uh, and then it turns out to be Moriarty. Um, and right. But the idea right. is that Mori- it's rather than being a world war, Moriarty is trying to start a gang war uh, between his criminal empire in the West End and the Chinese gangs in the East End. And es- right. essentially he's both running the, the British military intelligence and being a crime lord, and the government are aware of this. Like they installed him both as a criminal and as the head okay. of military intelligence. <laughs> and then when he gets not to spoil it too much, but when he gets defeated, um Mycroft Holmes does then become M.
1: Okay, well that's that's that's
2: interesting.
1: It's also interesting that Mina Harker is the leader
2: yeah. in Yeah, well, she's, the she's also not a vampire in the comics. Um, yeah, the, the I mean, comics, she of, more true. it's kind
0: of a big point, isn't it, that everyone thinks she's a vampire and it turns out she's not. Yeah. And I kind of get the impression when they had the treatment, they were like, well, yeah, we're just not going to do that because otherwise she's just a woman.
1: <laughs> I have knowledge of some of the books that these are better. So I've read Dorian Gray, for instance, um I I know most of the story of Dracula. I don't think I've ever read it the whole way through, but I do seem to have a decent grasp on it. Uh, but Mina Harker gets bitten, and but then by the end she's cured, right? In in Dracula, yeah. So it doesn't. So this version that the film presents doesn't stick to it. I mean, Dorian Gray is. I mean, Dorian Gray is not a hero, but he is not the character that he is depicted as. Here. I mean,
2: I don't. I um, don't
1: mind the
2: basic premise of putting Dorian Gray in this film in the way that they do it. As in, if you're doing a, a team of characters from Victorian literature who have superpowers, then having Dorian Gray as your immortal one is great. That's a really good idea. Makes sense. I also don't mind him turning out to be the the one who's the traitor because Dorian Gray is an asshole. It's like, both <laughs> both of those things are fine. Things that don't yeah. work for me are firstly... Well, I mean, all the stuff with how he's actually immortal and the portrait and stuff is a bit ridiculous.
1: It's the... It is a, it's a and really, getting shot with bullets. Yeah. It's <laughs> a
2: really pernickety thing to, to, to pick up on. But the look of him, it's just the fact that, you know, of, of all characters in literature, Dorian Gray is one who is, is so specifically described in the book that to have him look completely different is just weird. And, um, there's the whole thing where Quatermain talks about because they, they, it's it's how they get across that Dorian is immortal. And Quatermain talks about being a young man and Dorian lecturing at university. But for that to be the case, Dorian would have to be have to have been around about sixty years or so prior to the publication of the picture of Dorian Gray. So it's just they you know all of the other characters you know the idea of Tom Sawyer being the age that he is is based on the fact that Tom Sawyer was you know some years previously. But with Dorian Gray, it's just oh, let's just protect. I mean, can, like can I Picture Dorian Gray was published really late in the, in
1: in the century.
0: Because I I had uh, I have a memory. I should have looked this up. I have a memory that Tom Sawyer isn't the right era
1: there are there were there were sequels to the book which were less well known that they basically used as a basis to explain but the first yeah the the first
2: book is 1876 so this film is basically 20 years on from that so so that tom tom sawyer works tom sawyer fits but picture of Dorian Grey, I'll get the the precise date. I mean it does I suppose it doesn't matter too much because all they say <laughs> you could say, you know, the book is based on a character from so-and-so years previously. But Dorian Grey was published in 1890 and is supposed to be contemporary of that time. It's
1: not supposed to be 1840 or something. I don't think it needs to matter that much, because we're talking about if you are simply taking the high concept of League of It Stronger Gentlemen, which is Victorian era. Literary heroes are all these... I mean, it doesn't have to be the real world, necessarily. Um, You could make it just be like a Marvel Cinematic Universe-style thing, that this is the Victorian Literature Cinematic Universe. They all exist. They all interact. It doesn't have to fully line up with all the dates of the books or whatever, but what it does need to do is at least stay true to those Mm. characters, because... Otherwise, why bother using those characters? Like, what? Otherwise, it is just Victorian heroes by name, and then we'll do whatever we want with them. Otherwise, I, ju- I just think if the you, concept is modelled, if you are going to start just taking it as oh
2: if they're from the 1800s they're fair game and it doesn't matter where we put them you're already moving away from the premise which is because the premise is carefully constructed around a particular point in time where all of these characters have existed and are at different ages and different stages in their lives so Quartermain's adventures were years and years and years ago and Mina Harker read yeah. about them as a child and, and that becomes a significant point and it's after Sherlock Holmes had been killed off in the Holmes story so that's a plot point and it's like it's part of what's so clever about the comic. And, and I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the comic and there are loads of ways in which it's great and also ways in which I'm not sure it's dated brilliantly and it has problematic elements, but it is generally a pretty great comic. And one of the things that's really clever about it is that it places itself at this particular point in time where these stories can happen with all of these characters at the point that they're supposed to. And, and volume mm. two very particularly. Is based around a famous Victorian era story happening to the League yeah. of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So
1: I do know what that yeah. is so because that so um, apparently that is <laughs> yeah. that is what they wanted the sequel to be. Which sounds crazy to me that they. So basically in the sequel, they get dragged into the events of War of the Worlds, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and it's which, so good. <laughs> which, given how much this departs, so apparently, I mean, we will get to the troubled production of this mm-hmm. movie, but basically, for various reasons, they were not able to film the the kind of coda on the end of the film that they wanted to, and ended up doing the Witch Doctor stuff with Alan Quartermain instead. Uh, it's the, it's the <laughs> end is, of Batman v Superman. Which is a thing. Oh, yes, it is. Um... Uh and, and what they originally wanted to do was have campion Bond turn up, which they were gonna they were able to get around rights wise okay. by just never referring to the fact that he was related, mm. but having a basically suave British spy guy called campion Bond campion's not suave um, and he though, would he's have a, turned big fat idiot
0: well anyway, so <laughs> the the joke. idea being
1: the idea being that Campion Bond would turn up at the end and say, We need you to come to London because aliens. Mm. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, but that, that didn't happen because of all the production stuff, but it seems insane that, that they were going to do a direct adaptation of the sequel, given how, how, how little this Mm. bears any relation to the original comic. I mean, I
0: do, I do kind of get the impression that they were trying to adapt bits of the comic, like having Moriarty in there as the villain, Mm. like that was in, and like they go to Paris because they go to Paris in the comics, but for a different reason, like it's they clearly had one eye on the comic.
1: I think a lot of these changes have been made because the producers who were making a PG-13 summer blockbuster went, how much, how much do mainstream audiences know about these literary characters? And so, A, we can mess with them a lot. I mean, it's thrown in that M is Moriarty, but there is no kind of explaining that that's a Sherlock Holmes thing because it's just like... Oh, your real name's Moriarty, and so anyone who knows who Moriarty is goes, huh, okay. And anyone who doesn't goes, carry on. And I feel like that that maybe underpinned a lot of this, that they just, they didn't know how much people cared about Victorian I heroes. I love how they don't to ever to explain is, how he's Moriarty, by the way. You get
2: that line where he says, oh, uh, Moriarty died, died and I was reborn. Yeah. And
1: they, Don't explain how he's a young man and and still alive. No, I mean that it feels like they they don't really care about that. Well, like that. Well, that's the thing. They don't really care about any of the Victorian stuff. It's just it was a high concept that they used to build a film around. And to me, it just seems like something I can't imagine how this would ever appeal to a mainstream audience as a summer blockbuster. Maybe as a mid-budget movie that is a lot less action-driven, or as a TV miniseries. But as I, I a know. big summer
0: blockbuster, because but, do, 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 yeah, like, I think do kids know who Alan Quartermaine is? Well, I think that's doing the audience down a bit. Like, I yeah, and even if, if you don't know all you of the characters, how
2: many of these characters are known from films?
0: Yeah, like, yeah,
2: but like, you've got you've got a character from Dracula. You've got people know who Tom Sawyer is. You know who the Invisible Man is. Well, to an extent, you know, who yeah, Dorian you don't, Gray is. you don't have and to you can know every of fudge the others. And like, um, it's
0: notable when Quartermaine yeah, first turns I, up. He's like, blah 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 blah, something. A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> like I forget exactly how they do it. But, oh no, it's King Solomon's Mines, isn't it?
2: No, it's it, 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 King Solomon's Mines. Yeah. yeah, I could talk to you about King Solomon's Mines. Yeah, like, hey, so like
0: they give, you, they give you they give you enough information so- <laughs> to go. Oh, I've heard of that book. That he's that guy. Like you don't have to have read it. You don't have to recognize yeah. it.
1: You mentioned Tom Sawyer. That I mean, the inclusion of that character to me is hilarious because I I watched this a few days ago and then kind of did the Wikipedia reading afterwards and. I had forgotten which of these characters were and weren't, you know, (laughs) original to the comics and the film. And I kind of went, I wonder whether Shane West was added as Tom Sawyer because they wanted an American character (laughs) or because they wanted a younger character because everyone else is pretty old. It was because they wanted an American. (laughs) It was both. It was both. They (laughs) wanted to appeal to the youth audiences and they wanted American view in. So they cast the guy from A Walk to Remember, which was a big kind of, like um young romantic film at the time basically proto notebook and cast him also and 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 yeah and then you get an american in there as well but i mean he is just so so clearly that is the reason he's there
2: (laughs) can can i actually weirdly defend an aspect of this film and an aspect of this film that was added in ridiculously that has nothing to do with the comic at least having tom sawyer in it gives Quatermain his only character note throughout the entire film, which is his son is dead and he feels quite bad about that and he takes on a paternal relationship with Tom Sawyer. There is at least throughout his whole story, from the beginning to the very final scene of the film, yeah. a character through line and an arc. And it's about the only one that any character gets throughout <laughs> I, the film, so we should cling on to it.
0: Like, I, I kind of like as well the idea of Quartermain as a commentary on Sean Connery's career. like he's an old guy and he's at the end of it and he's going out for one last adventure and at the end of it he dies (laughs) and like you can kind of see someone selling like Sean Connery saying well you know this is a guy who's in the you know in his final years he's you know looking back on his time and wondering if it was all worth it and stuff and you can see like as a character there were some some things in there that would have made Sean Connery go Oh, actually, I can connect with something here. Like, the fact that it didn't really pan out is immaterial, but there was a starting point, if not an end.
1: Yeah, we will get into a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff of this movie and some of the stuff that happened as a result of this movie and some of the production troubles it had. The Connery stuff is, I mean, particularly fascinating because Connery hated this film so much, he gave up acting. I mean, you know, this is, <laughs> this is one of the... This is one of the great British acts. I mean, he was Bond. He, he still is James Bond. And he has made some... You know, he's had so many iconic roles over the years. And this film, he had such a terrible experience on it that he just went, nope, nope. I'm going to go live in Barbados. I'm going to play some golf. And I'm just going to be grumpy. I used to act and be grumpy. Now I'm just going to be grumpy. He fell out monumentally with director Stephen Norrington on set. Um, they clashed over just about everything to the point that when Stephen Norrington didn't, act, didn't turn up to the premiere of this film, someone on the red carpet asked Sean Connery where he was and Sean Connery said, I don't know, check the local asylum. That is how much he hated working <laughs> with Stephen Norrington, how little they got on. I mean, Sean Connery apparently took this role after turning down The Matrix because he didn't understand the script. He then turned down... Lord of the Rings, because he didn't understand the script, he was going to be either Morpheus or Gandalf and turned down both of those roles and said, well, that's not going to happen to me three times. I don't understand this script either, but I will be Alan Quartermain. The knock-on effect from that was they had to pay Connery so much to do this movie that they had to cheap it out on all of the other actors. And so, as much as I like people like Jason Fleming and um well, uh, Richard Roxburgh to an extent and Tony Curran... Um, this was a bargain basement cast. Shane West took this film after he missed out on getting Terminator 3 and basically took this as just a way to still do a blockbuster movie. Uh, they they really had to scrape the bottom of the barrel because of all of that. Add to that that Connery hated Norrington and wasn't doing it. It's just it's just a fascinating clusterfuck behind the scenes. And I mean, I, you you talk about you talked about Connery not liking the opium stuff. It sounds like there was a lot of stuff that Connery didn't like um, that didn't then make it into the film and there was a lot of stuff that Connery perhaps could have could have liked that could have made the film better but wasn't able to because he didn't get on with Stephen Norrington. And, Steve, and of course Stephen Norrington hasn't
2: worked since either. The promising no. director of Blade. <laughs> um, yeah. Although I know I didn't really like Blade but he was certainly seen as a promising director and um it's interesting because you look and he has been linked with films and announced
1: with films but he literally yeah. has not released a film since then either. He almost did um, The Crow which is still bouncing around that remake is still mm. bouncing around kind of development. In fact it, it um, seems like the only person whose um like film career wasn't like
2: damaged by this film was Alan Moore because the funny thing about this film is this film isn't the film that saw Alan Moore swear off movies. Like he it, it, I mean Something happened in relation to this film that really pissed him off, but it wasn't so much the, <laughs> mm. um, yeah. I know it was, no, hang on, I ignore oh, that, no, I got no, that, that the wrong a... way around, because I was thinking of no, was a... V for Vendetta. No, V for Vendetta, his, his annoyance over that was what made him sever ties completely with DC, but with the, the lawsuit with this was what made him say, I'm not gonna
1: sell the rights to any of my stuff okay, anymore. Yeah. 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 You should, you should explain the lawsuit that Alan Moore was involved, well, that, that the the film was involved in. Yeah. Alan Moore, probably the crucial aspects is that he wasn't involved in it. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you've, you've got, aside from
2: all of the problems with the people who actually made the film, you've also got the issue with, um, Alan Moore and the various disputes that he's had, some of which as a result of this film. Because the, the funny thing about this film is that, like, I, I was looking at this and I thought, well, hang on, how did this, even get made as a film in the first place because Alan Moore has the rights to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. It's This isn't V for Vendetta or Watchmen, where DC own it, even though it was originally published by DC. And I'll explain the mechanics of that in a, in a minute. But um Alan Moore willingly sold the rights to this comic, to Fox, um, actually before the first issue had come out, um, in the yeah. same way as he willingly sold the rights to From Hell. Because Alan Moore used to have the attitude with the movies of... They can go away and make these movies if they want to. I will happily take the money. And uh, according to Don Murphy, the producer, Alan Moore, got a million dollars for the option on this. So, um you know, <laughs> he'll take the weed. money. Um, they can make the films. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they can make the films because his comics will still exist and his comics won't be damaged by them. Um, even though From Hell wasn't a very good movie, didn't really change his opinion. Uh, He just said, you know, I won't go and see them if they're bad. And I'm sure he would have felt the same about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen had it not been for the fact that two guys brought a lawsuit against Fox because they claimed that in the 90s they had pitched uh, a a script called Cast of Characters um, to Fox and Fox had rejected it. And their claim that they took to court was that Fox hired Alan Moore to go and write a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic so that they could option it and turn it into a movie. Um, And what annoyed Alan Moore was that instead of properly fighting it, even though Moore did go to court and stuff um, as a a witness, I think he was deposed, um, Fox settled. And Alan Moore basically said that by settling, Fox were admitting some level of guilt. And so he felt tarnished by that because Mm. essentially, you know, if you settle, you know, it looks like he had colluded in some way. And so from that's why from then on he's disassociate himself from movies and then some stuff that happened with ViFA vendetta kind of exacerbated that um because he had with ViFA vendetta he basically said again you know the rights to this have been sold I want nothing to do with it go ahead and make it but do not talk to me about it and do not put my name on it um and then somebody I think Joel Silver said at a press conference oh and Alan's really happy with what we're doing and he Alan Moore rather blew up <laughs> over that one um, <laughs> But it's, um, I mean, League is actually like the comic of League is responsible for Alan Moore having no connection at all with DC anymore. Um, because he had already kind of sworn off working with DC, obviously after everything that happened with Watchmen. Um, and then he set up um like a a comics imprint called America's Best Comics that was going to be a division of Wildstorm, which was the publisher owned by Jim Lee. Um Alan Moore was quite friendly with Jim Lee. They'd they'd worked together on stuff. They got on well. Um Jim Lee agreed to publish League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and then sold Wildstorm to DC and had to go quite apologetically to Alan Moore and say, look, we've got an agreement for me to publish this but we're now owned by DC. I think Mm -hmm. Alan Alan Moore tends to appreciate it if people phone him up to apologise or thank for things. So I don't think he's got any beef with Jim Lee because what he basically said to Jim Lee was, if you can make sure that there's a firewall there, so I am working for you at Wildstorm and I have no connection with any of the presidents and editorial people at DC, then I'll keep doing it. And Jim (laughs) Lee said yes. So that that was working fine until in one of the issues of League, they had these, like, they printed, um, like, the way that they published the issues of League were as if they were a comic or a publication from that era. And they used some genuine um, uh, facsimile adverts of the time. And one of these adverts referred to a Marvel douche. And this was a genuine thing. This wasn't something that they'd made up to have a go at Marvel. Unfortunately, DC's president saw it and uh, ordered that the issue be pulped. And so <laughs> Alan Moore then basically said, I am not publishing any more I'm because he he had held the rights. Unlike his other stuff for America's Best Comics, which is owned by DC, he held the rights to League along with Kevin O'Neill. He basically said, You're not having any more of this
1: and went and took it to another publisher. <laughs> We well, see the interesting thing to tie this back into the movie. So, on the commentary track, um, the director, the producer, sorry, Don Murphy, he were just talking about. <laughs> he yeah. um, he was talking about how this film ended up, basically, how he ended up getting the rights to make League of It's Gentlemen. He was, they he produced From Hell as well. So, that's where mm. the relationship with Alan Moore started. They were on the phone, they were talking about From Hell, and he said, Well, what other projects have you got in development? what other comics are you working on? he told him a few ideas and Don Murphy wasn't really interested. And then he said, well, I'm working on this thing called The League which is You New Gentlemen. I haven't started writing it yet, but I've got a four page treatment. And he, and the, apparently they heard the idea of Victorian Justice League and basically went, oh yeah, send <laughs> us the treatment over. And they got very excited, um, pitched the movie, basically bought the rights to League on the spot um, and decided to start developing the movie based on, Pretty much just the high concept, which might be how this film ended up being so different from the source material. A little bit kind of like how Kick-Ass was still being written by Mark Miller while Mark, uh, Michael, uh, Matthew Vaughan was working on the film. Um, but then the interesting thing is, because this deal was done before the comic was even published, that is why Alan Moore was able to keep the rights to this, but he wasn't able to keep the rights of the other stuff from DC. So at the very least, this movie being made meant that Alan Moore retained publishing rights to the Rich Rummy Gentleman, which he doesn't have for a lot of his work. <laughs> so there is there is some light at the end of I that mean, tunnel. No,
0: for me, that basically redeems the entire movie. Yeah, <laughs> because League is the best thing Alan Moore's done, if not in his entire career, certainly the best thing he's done in the last sort of fifteen years.
2: Yeah, it's it, it, <laughs> it's the thing that basically made him relevant again because he had sort of. You know, I mean, he was doing some stuff in the 90s, but he had kind of drifted away. And then all of a sudden he shows up with League. And once again, it's Alan Moore is doing the thing that's the best thing in comics right now. And that hadn't been the case since, you know, since V was finishing up in, in the late 80s, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, some of the yeah, other America's Best stuff is quite good, but none of it is is on the level of... But Seb, we should talk about Don Murphy, because he seems like a character... Certainly does. And the, the and the sort the of it, this it's interesting how, you know, he had did have this actually quite good relationship with Alan Moore to begin with. Um that's certainly not the case now um from from some of the stuff that's been said afterwards. Um which some of which, as is so often the case when Alan Moore has a dispute with somebody, you can often see the other person's arguments. Um because Moore does have a tendency to um like he will take anything as a personal slight and will then proceed on that basis. And a lot of the time his arguments are based on him standing up for his principles. And they're often very noble principles and you can completely get behind it. At other times, like, you know, he does just sort of, you know, carry on with these arguments with people in the case of what went on with, with Don Murphy in this film, I think he was probably slightly more in the right than not, but even so, because the whole thing over the lawsuit, um, you know it was spurious and ridiculous and and Fox should have fought it all the way and and didn't but um yeah it's just quite interesting how how much Don Murphy kind of i mean he's a brash kind of guy and i think and in terms of being someone who will publicly speak out against other people he gives as good as he gets with Alan Moore which you know <laughs> it's kind of
1: entertaining to watch but yeah but i i was listening to the commentary for this film that Don Murphy is doing and uh, well, it's, it's kind of a joint commentary that just Shane West is recording on his own and trying to be very nice about the whole experience. <laughs> and, um, Tony Curran and Jason Fleming, as I said, having an absolute lark together, regaling you with anecdotes about how they did impressions of Sean Connery to Sean Connery's face during the filming. <laughs> and, uh, Tony Curran tells a good story about going to play golf with Sean Connery. Um, that's all great. Um, what, what's, um, what's less good is the Don Murphy stuff, who just, he is very brash about the criticisms that people had of this film. <laughs> um I mean, and this is a film that, even during the production, there was an Entertainment Weekly report from the set, which was basically unnamed crew members slagging off the director because he was doing 10 setups for every take, and he should only be doing two or three, and he was overworking everyone because he didn't have a fucking clue what he was doing, <laughs> basically. And there was actors who were not responding well to him. Connery was being very open about not getting on with him. And to add to all that, half of the sets flooded when they were filming in Eastern Europe. It was the worst flooding in Eastern Europe, something like 30 years. And um, their entire uh, Nautilus set flooded and they weren't able to film extra scenes that they wanted to film in Prague, I believe. And basically the entire production hit just about every problem it could. And so that was happening while the film was being made. And so on the commentary track, after the film is happening, you've got Don Murphy just being very brash going, well, maybe we'll get to make a sequel. And people who criticise this, maybe they shouldn't have been criticising that thing. And and trying very carefully to dance around the, the fact that there was any kind of disputes on set. He goes out of his way to mention how professional Sean Connery was on set. And I mean... I love Sean Connery. I can I could I can only in my heart I feel I have to side with Sean Connery over Stephen Norrington, even knowing not knowing what they were fighting about. But a director and a star who are openly clashing on set day in, day out, don't sound like the most professional couple of men, so <laughs> maybe that's the wrong words to describe it. And it... This film, I mean, I would love to like see an in- a, a big in-depth oral history. I would love someone to track Connery down and ask him 15 years on what he thought of it. Well, why and don't we to send get Norrington Neil to Alcock, to Alcock to do it?
0: <laughs> yes. There you oh, go.
1: <laughs> we'll find a way for Neil to get to to uh, to get to Sean. Give him some of our sweet,
2: sweet Patreon cash to go and be a roving field reporter. <laughs> and, our, and our Marvel money yeah oh, of course yeah the yeah the model check just cleared today actually, which was handy
1: that anyway was a lie, we've been talking... everyone. today's a Sunday <laughs> <laughs> um well we we talked a lot around the film um james as as far as you're concerned, what do you think it is that separates the comic from this, or what? What could it have been? That what adaptation choices could the film have made from the comic to to uh, just get some of the some of the quality across rather than just the concept? Ah,
0: uh, so it's very hard to say because, like, the comic is it's the classic Alan Moore thing of a comic that is so dense it's essentially unfilmable, like. It is thick with references, and part of the joy of reading it is just how much fun you have in thinking. Oh, like I get that, I get that, I don't get that, so I'm going to go and look it up. Like there's a writer called Jess Mm -hmm. Nevins who has published literally books of annotations that are as long as the (laughs) as long as Alan Moore's famously wordy scripts. Like there, you you just can't convey the kind of literary density that the comics have in a film. And, like, there are moments when this film tries it, so it's, like, bits where Sean Connery says, oh, it took us four days to get to Britain, blah, 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 Phileas Fogg, nudge, nudge. Mm. And, like, that's yeah. that's as good as they can do. Whereas in, in the or, comic... Or
2: putting a, a painting of a previous version of the League with Robin Hood in it. Like. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Whereas in the comic, like, you get... It's things like they wander around a museum and you've got, like, 15 different novels implied in the background that might come to the fore later on like so in that sense Mm. it's kind of unfilmable in in a very true alan moore way um there could have been why i
2: don't think they should have tried
0: well again like i think they did they did the right thing in stripping it right back to the premise and just trying to build a a completely yeah but but then yeah whether it could have ever been as good as the comic is debatable. Like, it could have been good. That's all it, you know, that's all you can say.
2: Yeah, I was... There is there is one thing that it has over the comic and, and which, in a sense, in which it is better than the comic. It contains zero rapes. And so <laughs> at least in that sense, it's it's better than the comic. Mm. The comic, yes. I think, has a few too many rapes in it, if I'm honest. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was um, I was actually recently listening to um, an an old archived um, podcast from uh, our pals over at House to Astonish, uh, previous guest uh, of the podcast, of course, Sal Kennedy, his podcast, and um, I think it was actually his co-host Paul O'Brien who was saying on the podcast that he doesn't quite have the reverence for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that a lot of his readers have, and. Because basically, he thinks a lot of it. it I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but it, it does come down to like, oh, isn't it clever with all of these little literary things here, and that maybe that does a bit that that ends up getting the giving the comic more credit than it deserves. But it's dense and it has all these references. But how good is the actual thrust of the content itself? Is it, is there any you know is it, it does can you see anything in that argument? I can for certain parts
2: of the series um because there are points where the um the the stuff that they cram in just gets so ridiculously over the top and there are there are points where the the thrust of the narrative is a little lost. The way that the publishing of the series went was you had volumes one and two. Um, Then several years later, there was a much-delayed book that eventually came out, a big hardcover thing called The Black Dossier, which is a kind of – it's kind of multimedia. Um, The original version came with a record, and it has a section that's in 3D, and there's – like, it's one of those things where about half of it is absolutely brilliant and about half of it's unreadable. Um, And then there was a a three-issue but like extended issue, um, volume called Century that sort of rounded things off. So it and like as it's gone on, it's got more and more being about the overall shape of the fiction and and metafiction and stuff. But I mean, volume two in particular. Volume one is a is a good story that's a little dense at times. Volume two is such a good story and such an entertaining story from start to finish that I, I can't get on board with the argument of. Um, oh, it's just all of these literary allusions and Alan Moore showing off how clever he is and how much he's read because some of it is too damned entertaining and and can be taken. You can read the second volume and not understand any of the literary allusions and it's just a great story.
0: Uh, I mean, I can see the argument that it's kind of, you know, it's more of a game than a fun story. But I don't necessarily agree with it. And also the fact that there's a game in in feeling in, in the joke. Like, I enjoyed it. There was so much in there that I didn't get. Like, I mean, on a very basic level, I've never read a book with Alan Quatermain in. So that was something yeah. I had to go and look up. There are other things that after reading League, I was like, okay, I'm going to go and read that book now. And find out more about it. Um, the the one thing I think doesn't work in the comic are the prose sections, which are extra league stories. And Alan Moore's prose has always been quite difficult to handle, anyway. Yeah,
2: they- <laughs> there is only there is only one thing that like there is a rule: you don't read Alan Moore's prose bits apart from under under <laughs> the hood is the is the only good bit of Alan Moore prose um, backup stuff.
0: Yeah, so um, like, and
2: and that's one of the problems with Black Dossier. Is that Black Dossier has got pasty. It's got it's the, got a pastiche uh, of, of um, pastiche. Yeah, I don't think I've
0: ever made it through that. I've tried. No, I've, I've really i, I tried. Mean,
2: the, it's got a PG Woodhouse one that's kind of fun and just goes for a couple of pages. But there is a yeah a um, oh what's what's his name ah, name's gone out of my head on the road Kerouac. Kerouac uh, yeah. Yeah, kind of Kerouac general beat beat author, um beat generation parody that is just it is literally unreadable. Well it's not literally unreadable, but it's as it's as close to it as, as
1: can be. Right, Sorry, said the dictionary definition of that word has actually changed. It's <laughs> and literally I have- changed. That's I, its I, former usage. It, it, it's a shameful thing to admit because if you're a fan of
2: League of History, gentlemen, you're supposed to. I've never read any of the text backups because if you're reading it in that serialized issue by issue form, you want to know what happens in the next issue. You don't want to get, you want to go straight on to the next <laughs> I mean, issue. You don't is, want to get bogged down in this. This was going to be my point as end. well, which
0: is that those text pieces are very much strings of references, like increasingly obscure references. In fact, I think in the second volume, I remember him describing. Uh, the the travel log that makes up the second text piece being, like, his attempt to break Jess Nevins.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I imagine there's probably some of our listeners right now going, why aren't they talking about the film? And, <laughs> I mean, because really when it comes down to it, the film is so boring that what becomes the interesting thing about this movie is that background stuff. The fact that they had to call him an invisible man rather than the <laughs> invisible man. The reason why they dragged Shane West into it. Um, I mean, one thing that we that we can talk about that is behind-the-scenes stuff but so, so clearly shows up on the screen is the problem that they had with the special effects. And so the the rumour, uh, the, the theory behind this was that the film was del- was being delayed and that the studio were very keen on this being a summer blockbuster release and the special effects were not coming together in time so they had to very late in the game and at short notice bring in another effect shop to do work on the visual effects of the movie and... It's sometimes tough to look back at films, you know, from, especially from the last decade or so when CGI has, you know, developed at such a fast rate that you kind of look at Gollum in The Hobbit and you look at him in Lord of the Rings and go, like, wow, you know, we thought that was great back then, but look what, look what they're doing now. so it's sometimes difficult to pick out a film and say, oh, this was made in 2003. Is that is that the reason the effects are so terrible? Like, is do they just look dodgy because I'm used to better stuff? But you compare this to, let's say, just for instance, those two films that Sean Connery turned down. Four years earlier than this, they made The Matrix. Two years earlier than this, they made the first Lord of the Rings film. And maybe it's a smaller budget, but my God, this film looks so ugly any time it comes to the effects, <laughs> and they try to do some practical stuff as well. Um, Jason Fleming's hide suit is practical, but I mean, why? Why was that what they thought would look good for Hyde? Why is he suddenly eleven feet tall and like a shit Hulk? I I don't know. I quite
0: yeah, I'm, I quite, like quite enjoyed point. the hide. I as think well. it's I'm <laughs> right.
1: Okay.
2: They, they soften his character from the comics into like in the comics. Well, I don't even want to describe what he's like in the comics, not least because it's very complex is and that, changes over the is, course of the comic, but. He's the character that they get closest to how they're represented in, in the comics, I think. And I, I I quite, I quite like that a lot of it's done with practical effects. I like when they're doing the mid transformation and they've, they've, they've made these kind of half deformed arms and faces of, Mm -hmm. of Jason Fleming that they've slapped on and kind of almost like montage cut kind of thing. Um. I didn't really have a problem with how they. Do. I had a problem with the big CGI monster at the end, and it's. The, <laughs> yes. it's I was going to make this point. Give the Hulk to fight. Yeah, problem. The, the, <laughs> the final scene again.
0: True. The final fight scene is actually just the same fight scene from the end of the Incredible Hulk.
2: And, and that thing looks awful, because that is CGI and, and looks dreadful. And the bit when he's getting crushed right at the end. And it doesn't even just look like... It actually just looks animated. It looks like it's from an animated film, not not like CGI put into a live-action film. But no, I th- I think Hyde is fine. I, I Other than that bit at the end, I don't have a huge problem with the visual effects generally. I don't think there's I mean, much that they get wrong. There's some quite good... Practical stunt work and stuff. Well, the practical stuff is the
0: fact that it's all the fact that it's all happening on sound stages.
2: But that you know that is a consequence of what happened in terms of not being able to shoot as much on location in Prague as they Mm -hmm. as they wanted to. So that and that does come come across on the screen, definitely.
1: I mean, it was it was for me. It was just whenever there was CGI. I mean, fine. I didn't like their hawk take on Hyde, but you know that's that's more practical effects that's fine if, if you but what, know, I, mean, I
2: think you what we're saying about comparing that to the comic is that's not the film's choice that's them doing hide based on the comic you'll when you'll that's, see when you read the comic that's what Hyde is like
1: in the comic i mean that's so. fine i wish I, I wish they hadn't but that's fine <laughs> um but, but i i think specifically when it comes to anything cgi and i think it's very often obvious when there is cgi during a lot of the bigger action sequences um i mean i think a lot of the stuff in venice looks atrocious but this, the the shot that just i mean and the, the final sequences is, is horrible whenever there is cg stuff there but the stuff that really the one shot that really bothered me and it's a tiny thing but the building that we find Quartermain in at the start of the film and it's blown up and there is this <laughs> big explosion it's the first kind of cg shot of the movie uh well there's the zeppelins as well which doesn't look great um, but the, that, that building blowing up and you see this enormous explosion engulfed the, what should be the entire building and all of the front of it goes up but you can see the side of the building as well and there are no flames coming out of any of the windows <laughs> at the side all of the flames mm-hmm. are kind of concentrated on the front of the building and it just it just seems so cheap and so rushed and then when you get to the end and you have this ugly sub-Hulk CGI creature it just it, you know it it just compounds things and, and you're right. So there are, there are the issues that they had that was with the, with the flooding and having to do lots of soundstagey stuff. I mean, they go from one sequence in a library where there's a big showdown and then they set the sequence where they recruit Dorian Gray in a library as well. (laughs) So, so they, sorry, they meet the team, the team, the first formation of the team is in the library with M slash phantom slash Moriarty. Um And then the sequence in Dorian Gray's library is where they have a big fight. And it's just, from a simple production value, could you, at some point, why not vary it up so that the two big scenes at the start of the movie aren't both well, in it's libraries?
0: it's a film about books, right?
1: Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that is fine. But, I mean, just just visually it would be a little bit more interesting to mix it up a little bit. <laughs> Maybe they could have met Dorian Gray in his art gallery. <laughs> in his I attic. don't know. Yeah, in his attic. That picture that is of Dorian Gray is that it's like it's it's absent the entire way through the movie and then suddenly it's just there in his room when he's having the big oh, showdown. It's also,
2: how, how do you... Like, if you're doing Dorian Gray, you can't botch the painting because everyone knows it and people know <laughs> yeah. it from the movie. You have to have that painting and it has to look really horrific and it has to make the audience jump. And it's like they have the perfect opportunity to do that because in this, it's actually... So this is it's actually the moment that you know from the context is going to kill him as well, if he looks at it. And like instead it's just you get a brief flash of it and it doesn't even look
1: particularly horrifying. Yeah, it just, it's just looks sort of scratchy. Oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I had to squint to kind of make out the face on it, and then you're right, it's I mean that scene is bizarre because you are watching two characters fight who you know are both immortal from stuff that has been established earlier in the movie. So we know that one stabbing the other is not going to do anything, and they both know that as well, but they mm. seem to ignore that while they're having their fight. And then he thinks that by...
2: I know he thinks he, thinks he stabbed her through the heart, but it's like, you'd think you'd make sure, mate, yeah.
0: <laughs> given
1: the fight that you've just had. <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah. Incidentally, Monica Bellucci was originally going to play um, Mina Harker and, uh, and had to drop out. I mean, it's just for, an interesting little tidbit. For this version of Mina, Petter
2: Wilson's fine. Her accent slips a few times into Australian, but, you know, again, this isn't a version of Mina that bears any resemblance to the one from the comic. That's not necessarily a problem. And
1: for what they're going for, for this version, she does an all right job. She's um, fine. She, she doesn't get much to do. I mean, normally I would say, oh, isn't that typical of the one female character in the film? But... <laughs> It's true for almost every member of that team. They, like, I don't... There's no one on the team that I really hate. But, I mean, you said, it would like, name two characteristics for Quartermain. I mean, do the same for Nemo, Skinner, Sawyer, Hyde. Like, it, it, it's just... It's impossible for any of them. <laughs> like, what, what were they... What did they have to work on with characters? And that is so unforgivable when these are iconic characters from literature. Someone has already done all of the hard work for you. They've established all the key characteristics. Someone has gone one step further and written a comic book where they have extrapolated that character out even further. And then you give none of them anything to do. I mean, I went through like long stretches of this film going, like, where, where's that character? I feel like Quartermain's kind of been lost a little bit in this last 20 minutes. And then I think the same thing about Skinner, and then I think the same thing about Nemo, and I'd go, no, this is just a problem. In fact, have all of these characters, given that they are the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, have they ever all been in one room together? <laughs> like,
2: are they ever, ever all in one room? Um, yeah, when they're on the ship.
1: Like, they're, when they're on the Nautilus, there's definitely scenes where they're all gathered around a table, I think. Is there- okay okay <laughs> i'm willing to believe you i'm gonna bet that uh tony curran Although, wasn't actually there yeah. I, <laughs> I mean that, they that were. partly because because there's a scene later
2: on i was, I was almost going to say which is when they're in the cave but obviously they're not at that point because dorian's gone at that point and that sort of brings i mean you just one of the biggest structural problems with the film and you can't you you alluded to this earlier when you were talking about the whole thing with m being so many different characters and you've got the film sets up um you know that the villain is this guy the phantom um which i i according to wikipedia he's supposed to be a, a variant on Phantommas, but he bears so little relation that i'm not even sure that he is um he's a dreadful creation and i think you know when you when the reveal is made i think the you know he's supposed to be under makeup and stuff but it's just he just looks and sounds dreadful and then Way but why? Less. Why is he there in well, the this first the place? What why, does why he drive he, forward? Yeah. Why is he? Well, why is he masquerading as that that character? Then, less than halfway through the film, which is far Reve- too early, it's revealed that it's actually M. And then again, far too early, Dorian Gray, for no good reason, reveals that he's the traitor. He reveals it to Ishmael when he has no reason to do so at all. But does so and it's basically so that he can tell the audience. And again, that revelation comes far too early. Then you have the whole bit with um M and Dorian on that record video thing <laughs> explaining
1: their plan. And Which like, not only do they explain their plan, they explain their sub plan of the like high pitched noise. <laughs> the thing I like about yeah. that is that
0: they explain their plan and then they explain why they explain their plan.
1: Why they're explaining their plan, yeah. But by um, explaining why they're
2: explaining their plan, <laughs> give away both plans, yeah. But again, and so that comes too early, and then finally you've got the revelation of, oh, he's Moriarty, which which in the context of this film is so utterly meaningless and is dispensed yeah. with, because he, there is no point to it. It does not have any bearing on anyone's reaction to him or who he is or what he's doing. It's yeah, just like a name. In, you you talked about this before anyway, like, Joe, but in the comic, it's a name that's thrown in there. In
0: the comic, like... Moriarty and in particular the absence of Sherlock Holmes like they come up quite a lot like it's a it's yeah. a thing in the world that Sherlock Holmes is missing and Moriarty is a threat and and that sort of thing like it, it's set up mm, in a yeah. way that this film doesn't bother
2: but what what should happen is that you know you have the phantom and you know then the phantom kind of disappears from the action maybe even they think they've defeated him and then he resurfaces and then then maybe you, you know, you have the whole thing with the traitor, and then maybe slightly later than it happens in the film, you find out that Dorian is the traitor. So they go and track Dorian the way that they do. And then finally, when basically the point at which they reveal that M is Moriarty should be the point at which they reveal that the phantom is M. But as it hmm. is, like what should be their big moment of here's the big twist? They've already done it 45 minutes ago. And it's, and it's just, so
1: weird. And it doesn't so- make sense. Like, why is. Like, just, just something as simple as he's a guy who's wearing a mask with a withered face underneath. But it turns out the mask is hiding a little bit of makeup that makes his face seem withered underneath. Yeah, why doesn't he just wear a whole mask? Yeah. <laughs> it's um, And, I mean, we talk about the plan and the plan being explained. But, I mean, at various points throughout this movie, I didn't know what the characters were trying to achieve or what... like. So we start the move after the team kind of gets assembled. We have like maybe twenty minutes on the ship on the way to Venice, which I just found like as dull as I found the action. Those twenty minutes I just found interminably dumb, uh, dull, and and just zoned out through throughout most of it. Um, but we get to Venice and they're ostensibly in Venice to stop a bomb, except the bomb is already going off. But the, there's maybe multiple bombs. So they jump in a car that probably shouldn't be there, but let's just go with it. And then they are chasing something through Venice, and then Quatermain finds M, who is actually Phantom, and then the Venice stuff ends. And I know that they've been betrayed in the process of that, but I wasn't actually sure what had happened by the end of that Venice sequence. And then when everything was explained to me, I still didn't quite understand why why all the subterfuge was taking place in the first place. The only thing was that they had this hook that each of the powers of the main team were being taken. But then they didn't have anything they could take from certain members of the team. So why did they bring certain members of the team in for the first? Like, did they need Quartermain and Nemo? Like, (laughs) surely bringing Nemo in was a massive issue because that gave them the ship that allowed them to get back. Like, just keep Nemo out of this. Oh man, Nemo in this film is
0: so pointless. What I don't why does he do like a kind of kung fu stuff? I suppose they had to give him some action. Yeah. But, but like and, famously Indian fighting style? Like, really? <laughs> but you know what I mean? There's so much stuff in here that, you know, like
1: if you're gonna go so far off piece from the original source material, like Nemo being there fundamentally does not fit the reason they, in the film, give for bringing the League together. And nor does Quartermain, really, other than if you say, oh, well, he needed to be the leader to inspire them to come together. Uh, like, it, yeah. doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't fit in with the internal logic of the film. And then when I'm watching scenes, like I say, the Venice scene, and even after watching it twice in the last two or three days, I can't tell you how that scene is resolved. Is Venice just all blown up? Did they fail? Did they stop it? How did they stop it? Weren't the bombs and un- isn't Venice entirely built on water? So aren't all the bombs underwater anyway? Like I, 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 yeah, I, I just and I, I found myself doing that through the entire film. I didn't know why Richard Roxburgh's character, because that's the most efficient way to describe him, um, why he was orchestrating the war to then steal the league's powers was there a further twist or was he just trying to orchestrate a war he was trying to orchestrate a war which he would also win by
2: stealing the league's powers he wanted to orchestrate a war so that someone would buy yeah so that someone would want to buy like the super soldiers from him which is basically by
1: the way the villains plot in Batman and Robin so (laughs) good one there (laughs) and that doesn't I mean does that seem like a very Moriarty-esque thing to do Like again, um, if you're going to say he's this character, is that does that fit with our idea of Moriarty? Well, not I mean, really I've only because, I've only read a little bit of Sherlock Holmes so because I don't Moriarty's know that supposed one. to
2: be about crime, and and crime and war are two different things. Like
0: war Moriarty is good isn't well,
2: <laughs> but not like a world war, really. <laughs> like it's a bit. If it was more, he wanted to steal those powers and like you know create a kind of team of villains to commit crimes or something it would i mean it would be awful but it would kind of make more sense than i don't understand why he would want to start a war because as someone who has a a fiendish a criminal empire a war would threaten to disrupt that surely you know i mean in in the original comic he's kind of fight. he's he brings about a war but it's a war it's a gang war and it's specifically so that he can destroy london's other main gangster that's basically what moriarty's plan in the original Mm. comic is you've got two gangsters on opposing sides of london and he's he wants to beat the other one and so everything that he does in terms of putting the league together he doesn't put the league together to steal their abilities he puts the league together
1: to go and perform a task for him and help him win basically Mm. the formation of the league bothers me twofold because it bothers me from that regard that in in the inbuilt twist into the movie, not all of those characters are required for that twist. So mm. it feels like Moriarty is beefing up the league for no reason. He's beefing up the league because those characters, he can't really write out from the source material. The film can't write out from the source material, so they're there. Mm. And it bothers me, secondly, because... From, say, Quartermain's perspective, who has kind of been put in charge of recruiting the rest of this team and putting it together, like, uh, and uh, me as an audience member not knowing early on in the film that there is a twist or any kind of subterfuge going on, I am just being led to believe that this team is being recruited by M for a specific task and surely each member of this team should be coming with skills that they can contribute that their skills are desirable for a certain reason to achieve what M wants them to achieve and I look down this team and I kind of go well some of them I can kind of see that they have got powers or abilities but not that really relate directly to what he's asking them to do and so like from that point of view I don't buy into why Quartermain thinks he's recruiting these people or what Quartermane feels he can get out of these people as as members of his team, and so it doesn't it, I don't buy it from that perspective or the perspective after the twist, and it just I just end up going well what 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 am I watching and none of it none of it makes sense. I don't understand any of the motivations pre or post twist like if fine if one side of it stacks up and it was like okay, that is why now and it doesn't make sense cuz of the twist but go with it or this doesn't make sense but ah that's why it doesn't make sense cuz of the twist but this has neither. it's it's all confused am i wrong with any of that am i being too mean
0: i wouldn't say you're wrong i just you know it just feels like the film <laughs> like just leave it alone it can't take this kind of punishment <laughs> <laughs>
2: I never thought James would be the one asking us
1: to lay off on on LXG. This feels fifteen years on that has become such a punchline that you don't want to hammer it too hard. And but you can't ignore the fact that it is a on on so many levels a terrible, terrible movie. I mean it's I mean, we have just spent quite a while
2: talking about all of its flaws, which I mean, I really I find it hard to hate this film. Like, I that's the thing. It's not a good film, but it's it just also boring. it doesn't. Yeah, it's just boring. It doesn't do anything hateful. It doesn't do you know. Okay, it's got like one woman in it, and she doesn't get to do very much. But aside from that, it's not like it has horrendously bad treatment of female characters. It's not offensive. It's not a good adaptation of the source material, but. I don't think, as as I've said, like I don't think a good adaptation of the source material is possible. So I think if you're going to do a film of The League, you might as well be more movie-ish with it. It has a load of stupid stuff, and it doesn't make sense. But it's kind of... I don't want to use the word likeable, but there's, it's more that there's kind of an innocence about it, to
1: be honest. <laughs> it's
2: just it does kind feel, of... It does feel
1: like a stop-stop-it's-already-dead kind yeah, of Yeah, doesn't
2: it? They say, I mean, you know... It feels like a film from a simpler time, I think, and it's just, like, it's not a very good film, and I really, when I first saw it, I remember thinking, actually, this isn't as bad as everyone says, it's kind of watchable nonsense, I was really bored rewatching it for this podcast, really, really but I, you know, it wasn't a struggle to watch because it was actively terrible, it was a struggle to watch because it was so, so boring, but... We have talked about worse films on this podcast and more egregiously bad films, and, you know, there's another Alan Moore adaptation which, among some people, has a pretty good reputation, <laughs> Um which, <laughs> like, on an objective level, is probably a better film than this, but which I find far, far more hateful than this. And I'm not talking about Watchmen, because, you know, complicated relationship with Watchmen, but there is another Alan Moore... Probably the Alan Moore adaptation that's got the best reputation, and I hate is it, well, that film it's funny, and I don't hate this it's film. It's
0: funny that you mentioned Watchmen because I have exactly the same feelings as you but in the opposite direction in that <laughs> I think Watchmen is like akin to a cinematic crime and a <laughs> cultural stain whereas I'm quite alright with you, Vendetta like it's a it's an interpretation that I enjoy
1: <laughs> I haven't watched Eiffel Vendetta since it was in cinemas we will get to it on this podcast eventually but my but I then. I, as a teenager, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed watching V for Vendetta (laughs) and uh, knew knew nothing about it being based on a comic, so I was completely fine with that. I I I mean, Seb, I think what you're talking about, about this film being boring, and yes, it's hard to really hate a film for being boring, but when you break the film down and when you look at the individual scenes and you look at the characters, and there's a reason why it's boring. It's because there is nothing to engage with. Like you can say, you you thought at the start about the kind of steam slash diesel punk at least being consistent, and it is a take. Yeah, but it's a very it's a very dark grey. It's not an attractive film to look at. I mean, Stephen Norrington's Blade, that bloodbath scene at the start, it's it's attention grabbing. It's interesting. There's there's none of that in here. It's a very bland film to look at. None of the characters have any depth none of the relationships have anything more to them other than a hook that the filmmaker that the film tells us that those relationships have the story makes no sense there is a reason why it's so boring is because there is literally nothing to drag you through this movie there is no one character arc that you're going i'm interested in that there's nothing <laughs> it's a it's such a fundamentally bad movie And the reason I wanted us to go through at the start and say what is the one thing you like about this movie is because that is the hard thing to do. You can kind of go, oh, that's alright, that's good, but there's nothing that the whole way through you go, oh, well, in this scene at least I'll get to see this. And I think that, you know, the best thing that you can kind of say about it is like, oh, well, I didn't mind the way that they did that. You know, like you defended the way that Hyde looked compared to how I thought you know that character was realized but you defended it in as in a in a way that like it's not bad and it's you know i quite liked it and it's like the you know it's it's like the version in the comic at least that is as high praise as you can get for this movie and that and that's why it is i mean this isn't an infamously terrible studio movie i mean i would imagine if you go back through the decades of summer blockbusters and talk about films that are that are the big, big, monumental failures, perhaps the worst summer blockbusters, I think you hold this up next to Batman and Robin. Van
0: Helsing. Like,
1: yes, that's up there as well. That is up there as well. In- I mean, Similar I material mean, this film. I mean, all of the stuff behind the scenes of this as well, it's just such a disaster. <laughs> and yet, I mean, like, like, it wasn't a flop, though.
2: Like It's not got a good reputation, but it's not like it came out and made a loss or anything. It came out and did actually make money.
1: Yeah, but it also forced Sean Connery into retirement, and the director never made another film. You know, that's the kind of that's the kind of stuff, and it's set on more career
0: ending.
2: It feels to me like the whole "it forced Sean Connery into retirement" thing is a bit overstated, anyway, because like he was getting on already at that point. Like, what what movies might Sean Connery have done after League that he didn't do as a result of his experiences on League? (laughs) I'm, you know, given that he was already turning down things like Lord of the Rings and The Matrix, I'm not sure it, it it ended Sean Connery's career as definitively as... It's a fun narrative, but I, you know, I even if this film had been a hit, I'm not sure he would have done anything else.
1: You know, the Connery that could have been turning up every four or five years to do a fun little role in this or a cameo in that, but the fact that he just went, oh, no, I'm just going to move to the other side of the world and play golf. that's what we lost we lost the occasional just oh Sean Connery's still around and it's nice to know that
0: I mean ever like the thing that the way I mentally separate this film from the comic is that at the end of the trailer they they abbreviate the title instead of to the the like common thing which is L-O-E-G like Loeg League of Extraordinary Gentlemen they abbreviate it to Alex G And so in my head, it's always the League of Extreme Gentlemen. And I think that pretty much sums up the tone of the film as a...
1: Bad movie, you guys. Bad movie. (laughs) But very interesting to discuss. You get beautiful disasters and then you get boring disasters. And this is a boring disaster that just happens to have like the book that will eventually be written about it. will be That will be the interesting thing. But what's actually on screen? Not that great. But you guys are gonna give me some recommendations now of comics I should read based on this, which, um, maybe I will get a little bit more of that behind the scenes stuff if you are gonna indeed recommend me the actual League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comics. Is that, is that a recommendation that is forthcoming, guys? Yes.
0: I mean, that, like, personally, I was hoping Seb would recommend volume one so that I could recommend volume two, which is the better of the two. But I think, what is it, is, is it? 12, 12 to 16 issues maybe i can't remember the exact length
2: it's six it's six issues for each so it's 12 to okay read so, there,
0: so i think if you can fit in both like it's a it's a fun read and you'll probably miss a lot if you're reading it quickly but you'll understand the plot um so maybe Try and read Volume 1, because you can't really read Volume 2 without it. But if you can get to Volume 2 as well, that would make me very happy.
1: Um, Okay, so um, I'm going to read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Volumes 1 and 2, based on James. Uh, James's recommendation. Um, Seb, so you've got something non-League of Extraordinary Gentlemen for me to read. Yeah. So I, I originally thought about going in the
2: direction of recommending you a different Alan Moore comic. Um, just so you could read something else Alan Moore related that we might not necessarily recommend. But instead, I'm going on even more left field lines. So an interesting fact about this movie, which we didn't get to talking about in the main discussion. Um, the screenwriter of this movie is a writer called James D. Robinson. Hmm. That is the same James Robinson. Who wrote a comic you may have remember me discussing and writing about on the blog called Starman. <laughs> um, James Robinson is a fascinating writer because he's read, he's written some of the best comics ever written and also some of the worst comics ever. He's written some really dreadful stuff at, at DC as well as being the writer of Starman and he was the screenwriter on this movie. Um, now there was a recent comic that he did called Airboy that, um, that was a, uh, it was controversial for a, a few different reasons, but, um, Part of the comic revolved around a a heavily semi autobiographical but heavily fictionalized version of himself. And in this comic, he discusses. Um, doing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. His attitude towards it is basically, well, I know it's shit, but would you have turned down writing a movie for Sean Connery? Um, mm. and he, he, he was kind of heavily compromised by the fact that, you know, I, I believe he had to write about 20 drafts and he was originally told to set it in the US and then that got changed part way through. And he was obviously compromised by all kinds of problems. But even so, I find it fascinating that James Robinson can have written a movie as bad and as unintelligent and as lacking in depth as this and also have written starman so as a contrast to this film i would like you to go and read the first volume of starman um <laughs> the uh, so it's, it's 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 there have been lots of series called starman so it's the series that started in 1994 um the first volume is called Sins of the Father. Unfortunately, the trades are generally out of print, and Comicsology don't sell it as a trade. So to get it on Comicsology, you have to go and get the individual issues. So it's issues 0 to 5, because it started with issue 0, which is usually an annoying comics gimmick thing in this case it span out of DC's event called Zero Hour where they did a zero issue of every comic so the first issue of Starman is issue zero so issue one is essentially issue two and it's not like issue zero is kind of separate or a prequel it is literally issue one Um, but actually if you can and again if you have the time can you also go on and read issue six because issue six is the first of a recurring thing that they did throughout the series where they set stories um, like flashback stories in the past and this particular one is set in the victorian era and has oscar wilde in it so i just (laughs) (laughs) as well as wanting you to just read the first arc of starman because it's a fantastic comic and i really want you to get into it i also want you to read another james robinson thing that is set in the late 1800s but that is actually good and actually shows an understanding of that era and character and stuff so um issues zero through six
1: of starman by james robinson and
2: tony harris and various other artists
1: Excellent. I love I love the kind of bending and contorting to fit that recommendation here. It <laughs> it kind of works for about five different reasons, but at the same time, sounds like it couldn't be further from League of Extraordinary Tech. <laughs> exactly, <to examine>. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, well, I will look forward to reading all of those in the next week. Um, but we'll come to our final section now, which is the pitch. And I'm going real high concept here, guys, because you need to buy into something impossible, something real impossible to even start this pitch. I want you to believe that driven by a deep desire to finally see a great movie based on his work, Alan Moore has given you his blessing to adapt one of his stories. He's going to, you know, he's going to watch the film. He's going to really invest in the quality of it. And he trusts that you can make a great adaptation of one of his stories what film do you make? So you can pick here, you can pick something that's previously been adapted. You can do, you know, Viva Dendetta, Watchmen, Another League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, maybe. Or you can do a piece of his work that has never made it to the screen. So I'll leave that up to you. And um, Seb, I'll come to you first.
2: Okay, so you said about my comment recommendation that it was something that worked on multiple levels and i i think this pitch works on multiple levels as well i'm i'm pretty confident about this one because i've i've thought this through um so i believe that the next uh they should scrap what they're doing with justice league and the next dc uh cinematic universe movie to star henry cavill and ben affleck and gal gadot should be an adaptation of the 1985 Alan Moore story For the Man Who Has Everything, uh, which was a, a Superman annual that he that he wrote that was also drawn by Dave Gibbons. Um, and it's a story in which um, Superman is sent what appears to be a birthday present, uh, but which is a, a, an alien plant that gets into his brain and traps him in a world... Uh, essentially, he's caught in a hallucination where krypton never exploded and so he's just an ordinary guy living on krypton uh meanwhile this happened on supergirl this season well i i will i will come to that (laughs) Um, so meanwhile this is happening in the fortress of solitude and meanwhile in the fortress of solitude uh wonder woman and batman and robin um discover Superman, because they've gone to visit him for his birthday, um, <laughs> enthralled to this plant and have to fight Mongol, who is the big alien villain who has caused this to happen in the first place. Um, so it's a really good little story. Um, it can make use of the existing cast members who I think we can all agree that for all of the problems with Batman v Superman, those problems did not revolve around Henry Cavill, Ben Affleck and Gal Gadot. So mm-hmm. I'd be perfectly happy to see them in this story. You'd probably have to drop Robin from it. Um, But because of the fact that it is, um, we are not only salvaging the idea of adapting Alan Moore comics, we are salvaging Zack Snyder adapting Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' comics, and indeed salvaging Zack Snyder's entire cinematic universe. It's like Zack Snyder, who made Watchmen, and and arguably making Watchmen is what set him on the path to doing Man of Steel and Batman v Superman. Um, We are now going to pull back and and rescue that franchise with another alan moore and dave gibbons comic which will just be a really really good um superman story but yes it has actually been filmed before Um an episode of justice league unlimited adapted it and apparently it's one of the few things that um i don't know if alan moore's seen it but um bruce tim did ask him if they could adapt it and he said um yes that you know like he did actually approve them doing it in the first place um And yes, they also very loosely, I believe, I haven't seen it yet, but they took the basic thrust of the plot and and based a recent Supergirl episode around it. So um, it has been done before, but I think, you know, just to do a complete change of direction for those DC films, it would set them on the right
1: path. (laughs) James, can you beat the plant and them go I, I mean the bit of that pitch i liked the most seb was them all going around to superman's house for his birthday <laughs> well exactly oh actually th- sorry i did mean to mention as well that it also means that
2: you can bring back russell crowe which was one of the elements that people liked from man of steel because jor-el is a significant character in the hallucination so you can have it you can and Zack snyder loved doing all that stuff on krypton so you can go back to that version of krypton that people mm. liked so much even though i didn't but
1: don't let that count against the pitch so carry on let's not forget <laughs> The birthday party. <laughs> James. That's the fun part, yes. <laughs> James, can you, can you do better than that? Can uh, you mean, break your losing streak?
0: Part of me just wants to kamikaze my answer and say Lost Girls. But <laughs> 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 uh, you can look that up later, Joe. Uh, no, I want...
2: Axel Axel Brown can do Lost Girls. <laughs>
0: um, I want to see an adaptation of the most recent League of Extraordinary Gentlemen volume, which uses modern characters uh which uses modern characters to tell a story that is essentially what if harry potter was a complete shit and basically i just want to see uh, lawyers across the world get get the most out of trying to fight those court cases uh seeing what alan moore (laughs) has done with the biggest character like I'm not going to spoil who the villain is of uh, century, but it's amazing and also the
2: um who the uh hero at the end turns out to be, <laughs> yeah which which would bring a particularly big
1: lawsuit from a particularly big company <laughs> <laughs> i mean this sounds fascinating who so wait this is a when was this published uh
0: this was what it, it came out. Maybe three or four years ago, was it, the final issue? Yeah,
2: because the last the last volume was set in 2009, and I think it was supposed to be released in 2009, but it didn't come out until 2012.
0: Uh,
1: okay, and so can you can you give me a little bit more about, like... Uh, so Harry Potter's in it, but the, do they have to dance around the identities in this one, or do they come out and say they are? Oh, they, they dance they around are. it,
0: but it's clearly him.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But it's not like this, where it's like, it's not like this is literally Alan Quartermain. This is, this is a cipher for Harry Potter. I know, it's... Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's as, it's as close as it can legally be. Who
1: else is there in there? Because I'm interested in this, I kind of wanted like who 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 else do you throw in from more recent literature? Well, if if
2: you want, I can I can spoil it by telling you that the Deus Ex Machina who comes and who who defeats the Antichrist Harry Potter at the end <laughs> is Mary
1: Poppins.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's worth it just for that moment.
1: It, it is it is magnificent. <laughs> this sounds bonkers, and they're about to do a new Mary Poppins film with Emily yeah. Blunt. Yeah, so, so she I feel can like cast-
0: she can be in that as well. She can be in this.
1: Do do you keep Daniel Radcliffe? Do do you keep the bit where
2: Antichrist Harry Potter casts magic spells by shooting lightning from his penis? Yes,
0: yes, of course you do. (laughs) Okay, this sounds nuts, doesn't it? Though, doesn't it just? And isn't
2: he? he, Doesn't he? Isn't he basically written like he talks like Kevin the teenager? He's basically like a sulky (laughs) teenager when he emerges. It's it's brilliant. It is actually. It's so funny. Why does Alan Moore hate Harry Potter so much? (laughs) It's more about the significance of uh Harry Potter over fiction at that point in time I think because right, that's basically okay. what League is the League is from particularly from Black Dossier onwards um League of Extraordinary Gentlemen becomes a heavily metafictional kind of rumination
1: on popular fiction across the centuries. Um okay so I mean that sounds nuts that sounds really really nuts um but i'm kind of disappointed that you, now that you didn't recommend that i read that james should i just keep reading should i just read everything league of extraordinary gentlemen oh definitely
0: well mm, seb might say no but uh, in fact i might say no thinking about it <laughs> stop at century stop at century
1: <laughs> okay right well i think based just purely on the amount of conversation that it sparked up it sounds like james pitched the more interesting sure. one and seb, I, I mean. I liked yours, but I saw it on Supergirl this year, so <laughs> who needs it? Who needs it, eh? You said it could be previously
2: adapted. You can't could... hold that against me as part of the judgment.
1: No, I just, I mean, I well, previously adapted, but they did a good job last time. You know, if you'd have said uh, if you'd have said, just <laughs> remake League of It Strongly Gentlemen, but make it good this time, that would have worked. As a point of <laughs> but order. But they made this one good last time. Like,
0: the, the Supergirl adaptation of... Man who's a man Who Has Everything is not particularly good.
1: But Melissa Benoist is not it.
0: Well, yeah, that is true.
1: And that's key. What, I know, what, what I know that's I said... not how you say a name, but I can't remember how you say a name, so I'm sticking with that for the time. What
2: if I said you dropped Robin from for The Man Who Has Everything and replaced him with Supergirl? Played then by I'd be Melissa
1: very Benerist. tempted, but I've also got, on the other hand, lightning firing out of Harry Potter's penis. <laughs> so I there. think I'm still going to have to go with James. <laughs> okay uh well i think that draws things to a close this week um if you're enjoying the show then please do subscribe on itunes stitcher PlayerFM, fm or your podcast app of choice and you can head over to patreon to support us there patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe a brief patreon update we will be sending through confirmation during the course of the next week on what will be our commentary episode and we will uh We'll let you know what we're going to be covering on that and um, uh, hopefully uh, some decent estimation on when you can hear that by. Um, uh, blah, blah, blah. So that so that is Patreon. Um, also, if you've been listening recently or following us on Twitter, you'll know that we are running a competition in conjunction with Dark Bunny Tees. That competition is still going on Twitter. If you want to enter, head to our Twitter feed. There is a pinned tweet at the top of the account, and all you have to do is tell us... Uh, which Dark Bunny Tees design is your favourite, in a quote of that tweet, and um, then you'll be entered. You can also head to the website and get 10% off right now by using the discount code Cinematic Universe, and you should because the site is awesome. Um, and um, that competition, get your entries in before our next mini-sode, because when we release the next mini-sode, that is when the competition will have closed. So make sure you enter before then, and again, by doing so, you're supporting that site, but you're also supporting this podcast. So uh, we very much hope that you do that. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at CU or on Facebook, or you can send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next
0: week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.
1: I'm a Catholic whore, currently enjoying Congress out of wedlock with my black Jewish boyfriend, who works at a military abortion clinic. So, hail Satan, and have a lovely afternoon, madam. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time, with Kingsman, The Secret Service.